Kia ora everyone, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson and my guest today is Sir Peter Gluckman. Sir Peter is the former Chief Science Advisor for the Prime Minister and a Blake Medalist. Sir Peter, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, I think what COVID has has given us has sort of shown us a, a scaffolding, I suppose, about having some of the mature conversations that we've needed to have for a while. What do you think are some of the lessons from COVID that we can have to talk about some of these other really important issues? Well, I think the first thing to test, Jacob, is whether the community is ready for the discussion. I mean, there are some people who still think that everything will go back to business as usual after the pandemic, and others who who think this is the opportunity for an inflection point for a big for a big reset. I'm certainly of the second type, person who thinks this is the time to have a, have a reset, but there are people who who will prefer to just continue business as usual, including a large number of politicians. So I think the question of whether there is a reset will de- will depend on the nature of the conversation that happens over the next few weeks. Um, why do I think that COVID forces allows the conversation? Well, it's obvious. It's the biggest inflection point since the Second World War, since the Great Depression, since the First World War, in terms of, econ- of the economic recession that's occurring. And after each of those events, there was quite a big reset in public policy, in political economy, and how things operated. And there's no doubt in my mind that the level of change that's going on in the world requires New Zealand to really get a fundamental view of its future. That must be an inclusive view, not a partisan view. And I think that's the difficulty we have. We have an election coming up. And so there'll be a lot of tendency to want to, to have a partisan discussion. And yet, you know, we can, we'll set the direction of New Zealand now for perhaps 10, 20, 30 years. Either we will not take advantage of the crisis or we will take advantage of the opportunities that emerge. And the opportunities that emerge really relate to New Zealand's place in the world. First of all, we have come out of this, or so far, as a country that's made smart decisions, quick decisions, with good outcomes. So we can add to, I'm not sure the clean green image is no longer quite the right statement, but we can add safe to that, that as well and wise. So we can add more labels to that. And that should help our industry develop and replace what we've lost. But at the same time, we were already struggling to work out the count, the interaction between our our food production industry and our environmental needs. And of course, with the absence of tourism in the short term, we're going to have to think about how we rely more on the food sector. How do we produce more high value food while producing greener, a greener environment. And that's a hard discussion, not an easy discussion. And then on top of that, we've got to think about our people. We've shown remarkable cohesion in this period. That cohesion is starting to fracture 
because interest is starting to emerge by, and you would expect them to. Some people have been hurt a lot. Some people have been hurt less. Some people have not been hurt at all. And all of that will frack, and the tension between health, environment, economy is coming sharper into focus. And so can we build off this cohesion that we've got with, but acknowledge that that cohesion is fragile because there are deep issues we've not addressed around deprivation, disempowerment, uh, post-colonial situation that have not been fully addressed. High incidence of family violence, alcohol, drug use, all those social issues which are very real. And so in moving ahead, we cannot move ahead credibly if we don't also address those issues. So well, at the end of it all, I think we've got this social domain where we have things to repair, but if we repair it, we will be a much stronger country. And we've demonstrated in our cohesion through the lockdown that we can do things together. Secondly, We've got to think about our environmental footprint, and this is a big opportunity to do that. Thirdly, we've got to restore our economy, and that will have both export components to it and internal components to it. And beyond that, we've got to think about our people in other ways, the education system, uh, the research and technology sector. There's lots of sectors to think about, but it's got to be looked at holistically as a whole, rather than a series of silos. We've, yeah, and, and we've tended to work on problems, I think, incrementally tweaking them to get things better. But what is now required with a lot of these challenges and issues is, a, is much harder conversations and much tougher um, decisions, I guess, with regards to new technologies, be that, you know, digital technologies or genetic technologies or environmental or climate problems or social issues. We've seen a lot of experts and scientists kind of speak up recently with COVID. Do we need more scientists and, and other experts to kind of take a more public profile talking about some of these other issues to get public interest? Because I think this is a challenge. I think a lot of people like to work in private and it's safer, but now with all of these issues, is that how do we kind of manage that with trust and with the right information to, to move forward. We've got to be careful here, and we've got to be humble as scientists. Ultimately, these are decisions for society. And I want to, and I think the biggest issue is, by and large, people are more comfortable with incremental rather than disruptive change. Certainly, politicians are much more comfortable with incremental change rather than disruptive change. And, you know, if we go back to the 1980s, when we had a major disruptive change in our economic structures, the, the party that did that paid for that for a long time electorally. So we've got to realise that top-down will be incremental by definition. Uh, to make for disruptive change, and which I think a large number of New Zealanders want, we have to do it bottom up. And that doesn't mean intellectuals driving the discussion, it means everybody driving the discussion. And I think certainly what I'm involved in is trying to find ways to have that collective discussion of which what we are good at as scientists is identifying issues, pointing towards possible 
solutions, but the solutions have to be scalable, acceptable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there is a danger in all of this that scientists will be accused of being the intellectuals that drove the government to shut down the economy and look what's happened since. Now they're trying to tell us what to do afterwards. So humility is really important. And I would suggest to you that some of the scientists around the world have not been particularly humble in the last few months or weeks. And I think that that actually causes an ab reaction. I think overclaiming what they know, overclaiming the specificity of models, et cetera, et cetera, is not the way science should be, should be conducted. And so I think that um, we've got to be careful. Our job is problem identification, knowledge synthesis, decisions what to do with that knowledge belong with the, with the, with the broader community. Do you think, um, and I, th I think you're right, and, and that trust is, is so important. I think that's one of the, the reasons why New Zealand, it's for the most part worked quite well because there's been trust, but there's also been um, understanding of, of values or shared concern there. Whereas if we're just presenting the evidence, that's not always the case. And that's definitely the case we've seen with things in the past. What do you think some of the, the really important um, levers I guess we can use to present some of that advice or that evidence to then help the public navigate those discussions around values and 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 what what is the sort of the best thing for society moving forward? Well I think the first thing we're going to do is find routes to, to promote conversation and conversation is the most critical thing at this point. That conversation needs to be a true dialogue not assuming a deficit model or any other patronising model of how knowledge generation, knowledge generators talk to other people. We've also got to remember that this is not a matter only of natural sciences. This is a matter for the social sciences and the humanities as much as it is for the natural sciences. And those countries like Germany some of them have engaged social sciences very strongly in the COVID response, and I think to their, to their credit. Um, I think that we'll need multiple fora. So my centre, KOI2, the Centre for Informed Futures, is creating one such platform. There'll be other platforms. Universities create platforms. Royal Society creates platforms. Papa can create a platform. There are lots of platforms for conversation, because ultimately those conversations have to coalesce into some actions. And, but governments will not move until those, those conversations appear to show a national consensus on things to do. And we've got some hard things to do. So take uh, the environment. There are some fundamental issues about the environment which have policy, big policy choices to make, which has not been made. For example, issues over water, many issues still left despite many years of conversation around water rights, about water ownership, uh, uh, water uptake, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, do we need better regulation or better uh, information about land use? You know, the. The, the dairy conversions in some parts of South Island. 
have been maybe to the short-term interest of the farmer, because that's where the incentives have lay, but not on the long-term interests of New Zealand. And so that you've got a set of issues which have always been in two hard baskets, which are very sensitive because they come to issues of, of property and property rights and so forth. The RMA, another issue, the diversity of opinions between central and local government, which can leave the individual farmer or property owner quite confused about how to move forward. We don't have the knowledge that we have on environmental data easily accessible. We don't. We can do get funding for high-end, sexy research, perhaps with some luck, but for that basic research of environmental monitoring, for interpreting data, not sexy, not producing commercial returns tomorrow. Very hard to get funding for that. Um, we. Uh, we have to think innovatively and persuade the system that this are the things that New Zealand needs to do seriously if it's going to take advantage of the situation that COVID's created. Now, I picked on the environment. I could equally do that about food and agriculture. I could do it about um, uh, social sector. I could do it about the economic sector. There's many, well, the same conversations occur across sectors. But the other problem we have, which is real, is we're doing, there's a danger that this will quickly turn into, this is what the environmental group wants, this is what the food sector wants, this is what some other sector wants. And they're all interconnected. I mean, there's one thing we, we who think about sustainability understand is the interconnectedness between, uh, I don't like the terms capital, but let's just use them for now. Social, human, environmental, economic capital, cultural capital, they're all interconnected. And we need to get far better in New Zealand at how to think about policy making across the spectrum, recognizing that, that an integrated approach is needed. Now that's not easy because we divide our, our, our government into, quite understandably, the Ministry for Education, the Health, for Environment, for Conservation, etc., etc. But every policy that we talk about, whatever sector we choose, will have spillover benefits or costs in other sectors. And a lot of the work that we do in our centre, internationally, that we've been doing for a while, is how do you actually bring those different strings of knowledge together to help policy makers make integrated policy decisions, because that's what's needed. I mean, we're easy to talk about at the high level. We want to be a green country. We want to be a sustainable country. We want to be a socially cohesive country. We want to be a rich country. They're all easy statements to make, but we actually have to reduce those to practice and do that rapidly. Now, where does science fit in? Well, science fits in at every level of the story from, and when I talk about science, I'm not talking about natural science. I'm talking about all the knowledge disciplines, natural science, social sciences, data sciences, uh, the knowledge humanities, et cetera, et cetera. We need to realize that we need to understand the systems that we're talking about. We need to know how to measure what's going on. We need to understand, use that knowledge to explain what the options and implications are of each option 
to society so choices can be made. So, I mean, we can't simply tomorrow remove all the cows from New Zealand and imagine that we're going to be economically rich. We've had to face the fact that for a few months we've seen a massive reduction in tourism. Now, that might in the short term do something good in terms of our environmental footprint, but it leaves the question to be asked, how could we develop high value, less intensive tourism? So instead of what we've done for now, gone for volume tourism, how do we go for high value tourism? I think some people have talked about that before, haven't they? You know, trying to make Queenstown a Monte Carlo or, or these sorts of really high-end... Uh... Well, I'm not sure that is high-end. I think that's just high-end throwing your money down the drain. But that's, a, that, that's just a personal view of gambling. But, um, uh, uh, but I think that, you know, look at Botswana, look at a number of other countries that have really focused on what low-intensity, low high-volume, high-value high tourism means. Can we do that with ecotourism? Can we do that in lots of areas? We need, I mean, if we look honestly at the environmental footprint of tourism, it's been pretty heavy too. So we've got two environmentally impactful industries that drive our economy at the moment. And so we need to work our way through that. Science can help with that at lots of levels. Science can help us think about how do we get higher value out of our commodity-based export industry. Uh, what can we do now we understand that we're better connected to the rest of the world and that we can work from home or from a distance and still be very interactive with the rest of the world? Can we use all of this to think about the higher-end uh, technology sector in a different way? Uh, can, and, and there I, I mean, I'll steal a term from another country. How do we go from startup to scale-up? There's no use, you know, that's the issue in that sector. What could we do? These are all questions which we need to grapple with, and we need to grapple with them now, but grapple with them over one, two, three years, because we're not going to fix them all overnight. The consensus has to be reached, and we need to make sure that this is not driven by a narrow, by a narrow agenda. I would say, however, that right at the start of it, or you wouldn't be surprised, I think we are paying the price now for not enough R&D investment over the last 30 years, that we do not have that diversity of, of ways ahead in a very difficult situation because we have constrained the intellectual capacity of New Zealand by not enough investment in R&D, particularly in upstream R&D, most of our research has been driven by very short-term focus for a number of years. And now that's one of the difficulties we face. Do you think that, that a lot of that stems from the siloed way that we are taught, from, even from high school, and we're taught these individual subjects, and, and then you go into university and you're typically in one department and you spend very little time working across multiple disciplines and then all of that thinking, and of course, people tend to, to focus on, on areas of interest or they, they engage in, in only a few certain fields. But how do we foster um, an environment where people can learn from a number of different um, fields or have access to 
different ways of thinking that aren't typically siloed in, in, in one sort of um, group, I suppose. Well, I, I'm pushing very hard the University of Auckland in the space of transdisciplinarity. How do we actually train trans, in a transdisciplinary environment? Now, not everybody can be a transdisciplinary expert. Uh, there'll always need to be scientists who are an expert at soil, or an expert at viruses, or an expert at uh, treating heart disease, or whatever, or an expert in nanotechnology. We need those people, but we also need to create a cadre of people who are very comfortable working transversely over many disciplines in an integrated way. Now, it's not the same thing as thinking about interdisciplinarity, just as where you just get two scientists from different disciplines to work together. You actually want the framing, the intellectual framing, to represent that range of epistemologies in one way of investigating an issue. A few universities as well in the world have done that. We're currently writing a paper on how one might do that here. In the short term, and that and it's complex. In the short term, however, there's a real deficiency. That's what we tried to fill up a little bit with the science policy exchange of um, making sure that scientists have a, in training at universities have a broader awareness of the ethics of science, the culture of science, the philosophy of science, how science communicates, how science interacts with society, how science interacts with policy. And we're developing how we might do that even better and in a more effective way. Equally, I think that there's a need to, to encourage social and natural sciences to respect each other's on epistemologies and understand their languages and so forth. And that flows through to the humanities, although in my experience it's been easier to bridge the gap often between the humanities and natural science than between natural and social science. And I think that's been a global phenomenon. But that's changing. I think natural scientists are recognising more and more that the phenomena they understand need social science there right from the beginning. And social scientists are increasingly recognising data science, natural science are important to the way they understand the world as well. What do you think the key, I guess, areas of concern would be if we think about um, COVID as a dress rehearsal, if you like, or, or a sort of uh, an exercise for other threats in the future? How do we kind of prepare for those? And what do you think the, the, the main areas of focus should be to, to kind of, as best we can, kind of predict what that might look like? Well, I think there's many, many aspects of that question. One of the projects that we're leading at the moment is collecting data from over 100 countries on how the evidence played into the decisions around COVID. So we're actually running a global project through the International Network of Government Science Advice on what evidence was provided, how was it provided, who, what range of of disciplines were involved, what institutions of advice were used, and how did the government in that particular country respond? And I think from that, we may learn a lot more about how governments prepare for and respond to emergencies. I just wrote a piece in the UK 
version of, of, of the conversation with Chris Tyler about whether risk registers are being properly used by governments. It's easy to write a register, but if it's not public and if governments are not held accountable to repair for them, then they're not much use. And uh, I think that we've got a lot to, I mean, there are real issues about, scientists have known about pandemic risk for a long time. There's nothing new in predicting the pandemic risk. It's been discounted in public policy, except from a few countries that like, that has experienced the SARS, the SARS situation. The only preparation was, oh, we have a flu plan, we can manage with flu. And we've seen that that's just not appropriate. There's not a relationship. And we could have guessed that another coronavirus was going to hit us sooner or later, and it did. Um, and people predicted that it would be a coronavirus. So there's a lot to learn about how science plays into the preparational planning by governments for events that may or may not happen. Now, that's happened quite well in New Zealand in earthquake uh, work. In a country like Holland, it's very well developed for flood protection. Uh, will countries, and, and, and there was a rush of interest in countries getting better at natural disaster preparation after the 2011 uh, Fukushima event. Will there be a rush of interest in the short term? Yes. In the long term, I'm not sure, uh, to prepare better for pandemic events. But the event that we need to draw analogies to is probably climate change. And, you know, which is the, I mean, I regard climate change and loss of social cohesion as the two big existential threats that we need to think about. Uh, social cohesion at the global level, not necessarily at the, not the national level. Um, the, and the third one might be how, how society responds to technologies. Um, in, in all those areas, science knows a lot. The science is either being ignored listened to, but not really listened to, if you understand what I mean. Uh, and we remain without real action. How we achieve better is partly about institutions. In other words, do we have the institutions of science advice right? And that's obviously what our project's trying to understand. And secondly, in part, it's about the people in, that are in those institutions. Are they trained properly to be at the interface between science and policy? Because what's happened in many cases is it's been individual scientists having a large impact on the process, which may and not represent the diversity of inputs that are needed, as opposed to having an institutional process which has a number of inputs into it. And I think we need to think that through and that requires scientists and policy makers who are trained to be brokers, to actually have one foot in each camp and who are the translators of one community to another community. It, it, that, that, is, that is still work in progress. There is outside very few places are there many people with that skill set developed. When, when, I mean, that kind of goes back to that first point around incremental versus disruptive change. And I think of 
COVID, we see this exponential um, increase in cases all around the world. And we've got the same thing playing out in a, in a longer form with carbon emissions. We, we, we kind of, in terms of the science, especially regarding climate change, we, we know where we're going and we know what the sort of the models are telling us. So how much, how much additional information do we need from science, um, science brokers with decision makers and how much is needed with the sort of the, the wider community and with, with um, businesses and people's personal choices? Well, I think you've got the same issue in COVID, actually, that what you've got is it was easy for the scientists to say, hey, you've got a problem, you've got to lock down. That was easy. The issue is now was, was for scientists to say that was quite easy. The decisions governments had to make were actually very complicated. What was it going to do to the economy? What was it going to do to the social welfare of people that were locked down and in the long recovery that will follow? And you've seen that agonizing decision play out differently in different countries. You know, early lockdown, late lockdown, uh, uh, the degree of lockdown, all of that was influenced by that thing trading off. What happened in climate change is not dissimilar. It's been relatively easy and relatively easy for scientists to come to the conclusion that anthropogenic climate change is a big problem. It's on us and it's going to cause major threats of an existential scale. The problem both in COVID and in climate change was to present answers to government or, and, to the, and to people and to interests that showed scalable, practical, politically acceptable solutions. And the solutions often lie in different places to where you start. So, and in both, for instance, a lot of discussion in the COVID situation has been about the role or otherwise of behavioral science. Would people socially distance? How would they respond? to weeks of shutdown, um, would they, etc., uh, etc. Et in climate change, if you think about what's happened, we had from early on with IPCC, pretty clear indications from the climate scientists of what was going on. Sure, they need a lot more, they did a lot more science to get more and more precise, but the general conclusion that the world was warming at a rate which would be catastrophic has been known for a long time. But the solutions don't lie with climate scientists. The solutions lie with technologists, they lie with behavioral scientists, with sociologists, with economists, uh, energy experts, etc., etc. A whole range of different skills need to be at the table. They were brought together, they tended not to come together in a holistic way, and they've tended not, and they've tended to get caught up in the minutia of one particular aspect rather than looking at the issues as a whole. And I think that for climate change, there is an opportunity now. I think there's a real opportunity to learn from the COVID situation, to make it clear that finding solutions to climate change at the level of a society and at the level of a government needs transdisciplinary input. It doesn't mean single discipline input because the solutions are complex. 
they're very also, they've got two levels. You've got the level at a national level, uh, and every country is different in its context. And you've got the issues at the global level, which are really more problematic because we've got another layer of issues which, need, which we have not solved, and that is the collapse of the multinational uh, arrangements that were developed after the Second World War and are no longer really fit for purpose. So the UN system's not working particularly well. Uh, the United States has largely withdrawn from the system, uh, the biggest country power in the cut of the world. Uh, you've got large superpower politics playing out, and you've got interests of different countries playing out for the short term rather than the long term. The issue is whether COVID can be used to actually reset, get countries to reset their thinking about existential risk. Now that may be possible, it may be not, but it's certainly worth the attempt. Otherwise we'll be struggling with real problems 10, 20 years down the line. Yeah, and, and I think what we're grappling with right now in terms of the, the, the real, it's a huge social question around the values of uh, people who are immediately impacted by COVID and um, could die today versus the, the bigger impact around people who lose their jobs and end up with depression and potentially suicide, as you've mentioned, and there's a lot of different countries working through that space. How on earth do we kind of have a, have a discussion or, or put, uh, uh, you, you can't kind of value either one above the other because it's just such a complex cause. It's an impossible equation. You yeah. can't, you know, there's, there's no economic model that can do that, and nor can we reduce human beings to to just being uh, equivalent to so many dollars uh, on a piece of paper. So, and that's the dilemma of government. That's the dilemma of every government in the world all the time and the decisions they make. Science can't solve that dilemma for them. What science can do is tell them what we know, what we don't know, what are the, what are the conclusions we reach, and what are the options ahead uh, for a government and what are the implications of each option from both a scientific and other perspectives. But at the end of the day, whether whatever kind of government we live with, it will be a set of values-based decisions that will be made by the government of the day in any country. What we would hope is that a good government will take the science, the knowledge, very, very seriously in the considerations we make. I mean, the not, science remains the only way we have to get relatively reliable knowledge about the world around us and within us. And, if, and it is a, a a presumption, but I think a very strong presumption, that better decisions will be made when governments take the knowledge seriously. What we think we're beginning to see is, by and large, the countries that responded best to COVID have been countries that have taken 
pre-existing knowledge and the knowledge of expertise seriously and, 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 and urgently in what they've decided to do. Now, in some countries that has led to good outcomes and a few, it has not. And we need to understand why it failed in some countries. We're not, and part of that is making sure you have the right people in the room. Part of it is, and that means not just on the science side of the, of the room, but on the other side as well, the policy political side, because you could have the best science in the world. And there are a few government leaders who clearly were never going to listen to the science uh, and were interested in other outcomes. But, but I think that overall, science can come out of this as being recognised as more important to how society makes decisions about its future. Yeah, and, and we have a lot of big decisions coming up, and in particular with, you mentioned from other crises, we have around 10% of the population uh, becomes depressed. And we know that spending time in nature, exercise, connection with family, uh, and other things are some of the levers or some of the tools we can use to try and help people cope with with some of those things. There's new um, evidence emerging and, and some people are looking at, you know, doctors and researchers looking at things like microdosing, uh, psilocybin mushrooms or LSD. Um, if we look at that from an evidence perspective, what are your thoughts or do you think that, because the, there's the science conversation there and then there's the sort of the values conversation. It is quite a controversial one. I don't know, I haven't thought much about those particular, that particular question of microdosing, but the bulk of people with mental health, well, with problems with their mental well-being can be dealt with by much lower technology means, and in particular e-mental health services, a range of other, CBT and so forth. And most of what we're dealing with now in the post-COVID situation, we dealt with by just dealing with people's problems, you know, where they've got money, where they've got a house to live in, where they've got what their future will be. I think, yes, there is people with severe depression and anxiety and suicidality. Those matters do need medical therapy, but I think they've got to be well-controlled clinical trials of whatever those therapies are. Uh, and in the right context and the right people. So I'm, I'm not, I mean, we don't ask some deep questions. You know, we've got a marijuana referendum coming up soon. There are two questions that don't seem to get asked. One is why does Western society need another mind altering drug beyond alcohol? Why do we need one, that in the first place? What's going on that society is not strong enough and doesn't give people enough social well-being that drugs are needed to achieve that it's a question that nobody's asking the other question we're not asking is well the argument is that it will displace criminal activity do people really think it will displace criminal activity and shouldn't we be asking the question why is there a subset of the new zealand population that indulges in criminal activity and what should we do to stop that transgenerational disadvantage, et cetera, et cetera, that leaves people thinking that crime is their best way ahead uh, in a society that is meant to be cohesive and, and, and supportive. 
So I think uh, putting aside the, the pluses and minuses of marijuana per se, there are, there are deeper issues that we tend not to have. We, we, and we just passively go into a, oh, it'd be good to have some dope around to smoke. Yes, and I think that's that's a good point. How many layers do we need to work through to try and combat this? And you know, and it goes back as well to this, you know, constant connection we have with devices, and now we're we're inside all the time. And how do all of these different uh, pieces fit together to help us address some of those bigger issues when we can't go beyond one or two layers to try and figure out what what the root cause is, I suppose, and, and how we kind of work through that. And I think it's, it's because there's no silver bullet, it's constantly this challenge of trying to figure out what works for some, some groups or some communities, which is different to others. Well, or, or what is this part of the reset? Is this the part of the reset we've got on a treadmill of technology-driven expectation? And we need to actually think more about what kind of society New Zealand wants to be over the next 20 years, which actually does mean that the well-being and the, of, of all our citizens is protected and the potential of people to make it, to live in a world in a way they want to live is enhanced. And so I think there are some, this might be the, the, the chill out that's come as a result of the lockdown if it's encouraged that kind of thinking in people, and if people like myself and yourself and many others can encourage reflection on these issues, maybe over the next year or two, we can actually find the best way to reset New Zealand society. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fantastic point to kind of finish things up and, and it asks a lot of you know, there's, there's always kind of more questions that come from, from these sorts of conversations. So the last thing that I want to ask you is, with all of the information that we're getting, and, and you know, I, I guess in traditional media, we get these bites these days that often don't allow us to kind of dive deep. And now with the challenge with advertising and other things, they tend to um, dramatise uh, or... or, or polarize some of the way that it's presented. How do you see um, the way we communicate or the way that information is shared? Do you think that we'll still get this kind of traditional approach for five, 10 years, or will we go to longer form conversations without that kind of polarization, a bit like the conversation that we're having here and other podcasts? I would dearly love, would dearly love to get longer form conversation. Does it have what we've all learned about using Zoom, allowed us to think of ways to do that. Um, Short-term conversation, short-form conversation is not appropriate for what we're now talking about. And I know everybody says young people like short-form conversation. In fact, in my experience, if the conversation is rich and valid, they want to engage in it and they don't want to stop. And so I think there's assumptions made by because of other reasons. That, have, that are not leading to this country getting the conversations it needs. Certainly tweeting and social media don't help. Certainly the 30-second clip on radio or television doesn't help. The part, demise of quality journalism doesn't help. And therefore things like podcasts and other forms of long-form conversation 
become more and more important. Now, th thank you so much, uh, Sir Peter. It's been great to, to talk to you and it's really insightful to, uh, to hear, hear some of your thoughts about some of these important issues.